0: Amen. Amen. You guys have a seat. Good to see you again and uh, glad to be with you this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your phone or tablet and if you want to follow along and don't have a Bible, we put black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. Um, those are there for you. Free gift for you. If you don't own a Bible, please grab one and, and, and follow along. I was at a, a conference a few years ago where um, at a on a panel discussion, some pastors and theologians were discussing the audible voice of God and whether or not they had ever heard the audible voice of God. And uh, one of the, uh, the pastor theologians, actually John Piper, uh, just kind of raised his hand and said, all you have to do to hear the audible voice of God is open his word and read it out loud. And, uh, and I so appreciated that statement because um, what, it, what we do on Sunday mornings as we open God's word, we do so expectantly. We open it. Um, expecting God to speak as we've sung and prayed for this morning. We expect it to read our lives, to expose areas that need to be exposed, to heal uh, where there is brokenness or pain. And so um, as we do so, and we've, what we're learning through the book of Revelation, while a lot of what's written in Revelation applies um, to either uh, people in the future or people in the past, that everything we're reading Uh, applies to our lives on the ground right now in great detail. And that's the beautiful thing about God's word. Whether we're reading about uh, a church in the first century or what's going to happen in the end times, we we don't waste our time when we open God's word because it's always reading us. And so we're going to start in Revelation chapter 3 this morning as we continue the Revelation series. Starting in verse 14. And as we've read um, every one of these letters that Jesus has written to the church, this is the seventh and final letter. Um, We're looking for what he's saying to the Christians in the first century who were the first recipients of Revelation, but we're also asking Jesus to speak to us, and we're looking for how what he said to those Christians applies to us today in the church. And so we do so starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... eyes so you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, we're going to start in verse 14 in just a minute. Let me give you a little bit of background. And first of all, I want to say to our third through sixth graders who are with us today, who are normally in the kids' building, I need you to do me a favor. Anytime I say something today that you think your parents really need to hear, could you just give them a soft elbow and just lean over and say, Did you hear that? Or or lean over and say, That was good. Did you write that down? Could you do that for me? third through sixth graders, because we need your help today. And, uh, and and we do so because, like, I'm just going to be honest with you, like, the word is incredibly challenging to me. I've already preached this once today and uh, and I studied it all week long, and God is, is, is speaking and challenging me in some really deep ways this morning. And I, my prayer is he does the same thing for you and, and to you this morning, just being honest, right? If I'm in, you're in, okay? So here we go, starting in verse 14. Now, the thing about this church you need to know, of all the cities that... Uh, Jesus wrote letters to, this was the most wealthy. Um, A couple reasons for that. One, it had become the banking epicenter of the region. So the big banks were here. A lot of the commerce transactions took place in Laodicea. So as you can imagine, a lot of money stayed there. But there was also um, a resource that they had that no other city had, and that was the fine black They called it raven wool. And it was a really rich and delicate and rare wool that they raised in this region. And so they sold it for a lot of money. And so, just to get an idea of how wealthy this community actually was, um, under Roman rule, um, the Jews were dispersed to different cities and different regions uh, from Jerusalem. And uh, and one of the reasons that this happened is that they needed a a lower class group of people in all the cities to kind of work the fields and do the manual labor to make the rich wealthy. And so the Jews were basically just hired slaves and servants in all the communities. This city was so rich that the Jews themselves became wealthy. Matter of fact, we saw last week in the city of Philadelphia that when the earthquake happened in 17 AD, that the Roman emperor issued a tax break for five years so that they could rebuild their city. In 60 AD, another earthquake happens here in Laodicea, and they were so wealthy that they declined the tax break and said, no thanks, we'll pay to rebuild our city ourselves. That's how wealthy they were, just rolling in the money. Now, in addition to that, one other thing that they were known for was their school of medicine. There was a temple there, the Temple of Men and this temple was famous as early as 300 years before Jesus walked on earth. And it was known for, there was a famous physician that worked there in the third century BC who was known for compounding drugs. That's how, so all the way 300 years before Jesus walked on earth, this city was known for its wealth and some of the best and most educated physicians of medicine of that day and time. Now, those things are going to help us understand what Jesus says in just a minute to the church. As with all of his letters so far, he begins by addressing the people, letting us know who he's writing to, and then he identifies himself with a specific characteristic that is relevant to whatever they're going through. So we'll start in verse 14. He begins, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and he identifies himself, the words of The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So he identifies himself three ways the words of the Amen, the faithful witness, and the faithful and true witness, and also the beginning of God's creation. So let's look for just a minute at the bigger picture of what those three characteristics reveal about Jesus and what he wanted those Christians to see in him. The first one's really an interesting phrase the words of the Amen. So just to start with, what do we say amen for? What does it mean? We say it oftentimes at the end of a prayer or when something awesome happens that we agree with. is amen. What do we mean? Well, the, the word literally means let it be or that's true or it's, it's a statement of affirmation. So when you say amen, you're saying whatever was just said, I agree with it. It's true. Now, you may not realize it, but that was part of how God identified himself in the Old Testament as the Amen. Now, when we look at passages like Isaiah 65 in the Old Testament, I mean, this is written over 600 years before Jesus walks on earth. And and look at the words of the prophet Isaiah in, in Isaiah 65, where God identifies himself as the amen or the one who is true. You can translate it either way. This is verse 16 of Isaiah 65. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. That word also translates amen, the God of amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, or the God of amen. So this is in the Old Testament. God is identifying himself to his people, and he's calling himself the God of amen, or the God of what is true. But look at what we get if we keep reading. You're going to get an outline of Revelation 21. Now think about that. 600 plus years before Jesus walks on earth, after his resurrection, one of his followers is writing down a prophecy called Revelation. 21 is almost, the end of the Reve- of tw- is almost the end of the book of Revelation. The prophet Isaiah is outlining it. 600 plus years before Jesus ever walks on earth. Look at what he says next in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mine, Go read chapter 21 of Revelation. Guess what you're going to find? The creation of the new heavens and the new earth. But keep reading. Guess what else you're going to see? A new Jerusalem descend. Keep reading. Verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. He just outlined Jerusalem all of chapter 21 of Revelation. 600 plus years before Jesus ever walked on earth. And then look at how it ends. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. That's one of the beautiful promises when we get to the end of Revelation that God will now make his dwelling place with man and there shall be no more tears. You see this close connection all the way in the Old Testament. we're, 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 uh, We're getting this commentary explanation of revelation that wouldn't even be written for another seven to eight hundred years and Jesus identifies himself as that same God and says I am him I'm the amen now when we say it we use lowercase a right if you say something to me and I say amen that's right that's true and in, in my humanity I can only affirm something so much but when God says it, it's a capital a so what God says is true is in fact true always true, never not true, perfectly true. And so Jesus identifies himself as the words of the amen. And then he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Now the word witness, just to kind of understand what, what we're looking at here, it's not just it's not like being a witness on a stand on behalf of something, it's kind of that, but it's, it's actually bigger than that. It's actually the idea of being proof of something. Like being subst, substan, substantial, substantial, provable witness so if you're a Christian it's one thing for you to say I believe in Jesus I follow Jesus I trust Jesus it's another thing altogether to say I'll give up my life for Jesus right because at that point what you're saying is I will give up anything I have to show to you that what I believe is real it's one thing for me to say that I trust Jesus it's a another thing altogether to do what to say I believe it such that I'll give up my life, stake my life on it. What's interesting is the word witness um, is actually in the Greek, martis, which is where we get the word martyr. So the idea was the same here, that the most powerful, robust witness you could be for anything would be to give your life unto it. If you were going to be a witness for Caesar and his power, you would be willing to give your life unto it. And so the followers of Jesus were called to lay down their lives, take up the cross daily, lay down their lives, both metaphorically and, if necessary, literally, right? And so what we're seeing in in Jesus is what? That his martyrdom is set apart even from ours. He's the faithful martyr, the faithful witness. Now, what is it about his sacrifice and martyrdom that's different from ours? Should anybody in this room ever be confronted with a situation where you would have to lay your life down for your faith? What is it that sets Jesus' martyrdom and his death apart from ours? Here's the difference. We're trusting in his, not ourselves. Like, you're not trusting in in my martyrdom for you, right? If I laid down my life, it would just be a witness with a lowercase w. But Jesus himself has laid himself down as the ultimate martyr, and it's in his resurrection that we trust. That's the only reason we'd be willing to lay ours down, right? That our lives would all point back to him as the faithful witness. Without him working in our lives, we are unfaithful witnesses, aren't we? I mean, at the smallest things, we can shrink back from being a witness, right? We can allow a situation to be intimidating or, or not feeling confident in what to say, and we'll shrink back. And rather than stepping up and being a witness, sharing what we believe to be true in a situation, at the smallest thing, right? Being made fun of, or somebody might misunderstand me, or my reputation's online, we'll shrink back. And so we're witnesses with a lowercase W, right? But Jesus is the one who stepped forward and said, I will lay my life down for the sake of many. He's the faithful witness, the faithful martyr. The last thing he identifies himself as is the beginning of God's creation. This can be confusing in the New Testament as you're reading about this because Jesus is referred to as the firstborn among many brothers. You remember Um, I don't know if you remember or not, in John 3, where we get John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, that beautiful, famous passage. Before that, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he talks about being born again, right? And and he's he's asked, well, how can I do that? i would to have to enter my mother's womb and be born again, and Jesus is talking about what? A new birth, a rebirth, right? So when we think about Jesus being the firstborn, we're not talking about him being born from Mary. What we're talking about is his resurrection. That's his resurrection. New birth. He's the firstborn or the first resurrected among many brothers. So not only that, he's the beginning of God's creation. <clears throat> now think about, this is just something that will help you with this particular letter to the Laodiceans. If you look geographically at Asia Minor, and you start with the first church mentioned in Revelation 2 verse 1, and you follow it on a map, what's going to happen is you're going you're to follow a, a roadway that creates a circle and comes full cycle. Laodicea is the last one. Okay. So if you were looking at a map, it would be coming up to the north and to the west and back around to the east and then south. Laodicea was in the southeast. Just 10 miles away was a city of Colossae. Why is that important? Well, this was the ch- where the, Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. And there was a really tight kinship Between the two churches that I'll be honest with you, I wasn't even aware of until I started studying uh, for this week's sermon. A really close relationship between the two. Um, And so just to kind of help you out with that, if you look at Colossians in chapter 4, Paul's writing a letter, the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter and he's sending it to the church in Colossae. Look at what he says in Colossians 4.15. To the Colossians he's writing, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. Because I know you guys are close, right? I know you're going to be talking with them. Give my greetings to them. And to Nympha and the church in her home. She was a believer who had a church in her home. Then he goes on to say in verse 16, And when this letter has been read among you, so the letter we have in our Bibles called Colossians. When you're done reading it, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. So after you all get done with it, I want you to send it over to the Laodiceans and let them read it in their church. And then look at what he says. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, we don't even have that letter in our Bible. We're not sure what happened. It may have been lost in circulation. But evidently, Paul had written another letter to this church in Laodicea, and they, they swapped letters. So Paul is saying, whatever I'm saying to you, I want them to hear. And whatever I'm saying to them, I want you to hear. And when we think about that and we look at what Paul's primary message was in Colossians, it'll help us understand Jesus identifying himself as the beginning of creation. In Colossians 1, Paul lays out his primary purpose for Colossians, I believe. <coughs> excuse me, Starting in verse 15. Talking about Jesus, he says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth. Preeminent. And this passage just goes on and on, just beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is as the preeminent son of the living God. And so when we read that he is the beginning of God's creation, it's not that Jesus himself was created. It's that actually through him, everything was created. This is how John identifies him in John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And Jesus is the one we're calling the word here. He was With God, he was God, and through him, all things were created. And so it's interesting, though, is when you look at the situation on the ground in Laodicea, you had a, a, a group of people who were incredibly wealthy. Now, the word beginning here in this particular language also translates source or rule. You could translate it any three ways, and it would be accurate. He's the beginning, he's the rule, and the source now think about how incredibly important it is to a group of people who have become so wealthy that as a city they've said to Caesar, we don't need your help. And now we're going to see that to Jesus as well, the Christians were beginning to trust in themselves and say to Jesus, we don't need your help. And Jesus identifies himself as what? I'm the source of all this. Those sheep that generate such a fine economy for you, whose idea do you think those were? The grass that they eat and the water and the reason that they thrive in the region that you live. Whose idea do you think that was? Who set all that up? Who do you think the source of it all actually is? And Jesus says before he addresses anything else, I am the source of everything. Now, from here, if you're taking notes, we'll draw this conclusion Jesus alone is, first of all, faithful, he's the faithful witness. The amen, the one who is true. Jesus alone is faithful and the source of authority over creation. He's the source. He's the rule. It was by him and through him that everything was created. He alone is faithful and the source of authority over creation. So now what happens in the letters is that Jesus will now shift to something commendable. He'll encourage them on something that's going well, with the exception of two churches. Sardis and Laodicea. He has nothing commendable to say to these two churches. But instead, he begins to expose what is wrong within the hearts of the people. And look at what he says in verse 15. He says, I know your works. Now that phrase we've read with each of these churches but what we've talked about every time is how when God says that, that's different from when I say it or one of your friends says it or even your spouse or somebody who knows you well says it, right? If I say, I know your works, well, I, I see what's going on. I see what's truly happening. In reality, I can only see you know, this deep. What Jesus is saying, I can see all the way to the depths of who you are. Nothing is hidden from me. So when Jesus says, I know your works, there's no use in hiding or pretending, Right? Like, everything's been exposed, and he's saying, now let's talk about what I see when I look at you. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Or I will vomit you out of my mouth, is the literal translation there. Now, before we get too deep into the cold and hot, understand what Jesus is doing. He's using cold and hot as an illustration, a a metaphor to understand what's really going on on the ground. Okay, so that being said, let's talk about two different ways you could interpret this particular uh, verse here. So hot or cold. One way that this has been interpreted historically is that Jesus is talking about a spiritual spectrum of hot and cold. One end of it, you're spiritually cold and dead. On the other end, you're spiritually hot. You're on fire, okay? That's one way that some people will translate this. The only problem with that is that Jesus says what? I wish that you were either hot or cold. But the problem is that you're lukewarm. So that forces us to dig a little bit deeper. What was going on within that city and culture that they would have understood that right off the bat with no explanation. I think that probably the the most... Um, relevant interpretation has to do with the source of water for this community. While Laodicea was the wealthiest of all the cities, the one thing they did not have was the basic element of sustainable life, water. They had no drinking water. They were 100% dependent upon another city giving them water. Made them very vulnerable. Had all the money, right? But at the end of the day, if you've got no water, that money's going to do you no good. So they piped their water in from a water source from another town. If you went 10 miles to the north, uh, you would get to the city of uh, Hierapolis. And at Hierapolis, they were known for their hot springs. Hot springs rich with minerals. And people would go there to bathe for healing. And the water was thought to have been curative or healing. If you went to Colossae, 10 miles away uh, to the east, the water there was was pure and cold. Matter of fact, the Colossians, Colossae, had the only source of cold, pure water in that entire region. So it had no contaminants, nothing that made you sick. It was not only refreshing; it didn't make you vomit or throw up or sick. So it too was considered to be clean and purifying and healing. The problem was they piped in their water from a city six miles from the south, Dinsley, Dinsley. And the thing about it was, it also came from hot springs, but it was rich with sodium carbonate. And when, by the time it got to the city of Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was now lukewarm. And because it had the sodium carbonate in it, it would make them sick if they drank it right away. So what they would do is, they would take it, and still to this day, if you go to this city, that water they pipe in, they put it in jars and let it cool, because what happens when it cools is that after they drink it, what was happening is all the sodium carbonate was settling, and they were dipping the clean water off the top, but they thought it was simply the temperature that made them vomit. Now, but we also know this, anything that makes you nauseous that you drink, right, if you drink it lukewarm, it's even worse, right? So this idea, now the word here that ESV translates spit, other, translates, other translations will um, translate it vomit, um, I know it's a great word, Jesus uses it. And calls our attention to it. Um, here's what you need to understand there. The word, uh, literally, so in English, we have the word um, to, to emit, or, um, which means like a vomit-inducing substance. It comes from this Greek derivative. So what Jesus is talking about here is not just spitting, but the idea of something making him nauseous to the point that he would want to throw it up. So he's ingested something that would make him want to throw up. Their lukewarmness is making him nauseous. Now that's the metaphor that's setting us up to ask the question, what was it about these Christians that made Jesus, the Son of God, sick to his stomach? I need to know that. I need to make sure that that that's not happening in my life, right? And so he then explains in verse 17. Here's the issue. For you say, I am rich I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing something that's not really true not realizing that you are wretched pitiable meaning worthy to be pitied poor blind and naked you see what was happening that was making Jesus nauseous they had began to trust in their wealth They had gotten to the point where they trusted in their wealth so much that they said to Caesar, we need nothing from you. And they were now saying to God, what? We need nothing. And Jesus says, that makes me nauseous. Now think about it, the irony of that. Jesus has said what? I'm the source of it all. you know how nauseating it is for you to trust in the things that I've given to you and not realize I'm the source of it all? And now you're saying to me, you need nothing? This isn't in, in the Bible, but I could, I, if I were Jesus, I would be tempted to say, tell you what, let me just take all that stuff away and see how you do. Because I'm the source of it all. And they had gotten to the point in their lives they said to Jesus, I need nothing from you. They didn't realize that they were wretched, pitiable. And then these three ironic statements, poor blind, and naked. I mean, he's, he's going after the very things in their culture that they had grown to trust in, and he's calling them out. Let's start with poverty first. Numerically speaking, economically speaking, they were incredibly wealthy, but Jesus says what? You're poor. You're spiritually bankrupt. Now, there's, I, I think that there's a uh, a widespread misunderstanding on Jesus and finances or religion and finances, and, and two misunderstandings that I hear, and I'm just going to address them real quick. Uh, one is a group of people who would say that since God is the source of everything, if you truly love Jesus with all your heart and you truly have faith, then he's going to give you all the desires of your heart and you'll be healthy and wealthy. It's called this prosperity gospel. It's the name it, Claim It Crew. It's if, if, God, if, if God's happy with you, you're going to have everything you need. Okay, Um, it's bull, by the way. I know some people who are completely satisfied in Jesus who have dirt to sleep on and who eat, their their best meal they eat all year long is rice and water and they're completely satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another misunderstanding that, well, okay, then if that's the case, then in order to make Jesus happy, you gotta be poor, right? You can't have have money because money's the root of evil, so you can't have any money. There's this misunderstanding that somehow if you have stuff, right, you're not truly following Jesus faithfully. Both are bull, complete misunderstandings. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus isn't going after them because they've been made wealthy. He's the source of it all. He's going after them because they began to trust in their wealth and began to then turn and say to him, I don't need you anymore. Now, it's interesting if you look at the New Testament teachings on finances and wealth, um, Paul addresses this a lot with Timothy. and Timothy was a pastor of Ephesus, And so evidently maybe there was a struggle there in Ephesus too with what's going on in Laodicea. And here's what Timothy says about finances and godliness. He says in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. He doesn't say poverty. He says contentment. What's contentment? Being satisfied with what you have. Being satisfied with what God has provided for you. Then he goes on to say, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So if you want to understand what he's talking about by desire, read verse 10. For the love of of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some are wandering away from the faith. So it's this idea of craving wealth that is very unhealthy for the Christian. So now we've got a group of people who not only craving wealth, they began to trust in it. And Jesus is saying, that's what's making me sick. Not that you're rich and that you've got all these flocks and these banks and all that kind of stuff, you would think that that would drive you to trust me more. You would think that that would drive you to be more grateful, that your worship would be the most vibrant of all the churches because you would realize what? God has blessed us. Like Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Right now he's giving. Let's worship. But what? They began to drift away from that. Verse 18, he now moves to the solution. I counsel you, this is my counsel for you, to buy from me gold refined by fire. I love this verse. I, don't, I didn't get it the first time I read it. It's kind of a strange thing. Jesus says, come buy something from me. Buy gold refined by fire. Let's talk about refined by fire. In the Bible, that idea of being refined by fire is the process of being made pure, perfect. It's applied over and over again in the Old and New Testament to our lives. That when we walk through trials, there's a process of being refined by the fire of trials and sufferings. But in this particular case, it's being referred to what Jesus offers to us. He's saying, come buy from me something that is pure. Something you can't find in your banks, amongst your streets. You can't find it in your cities. Come buy from me something you can't find anywhere else. In addition to that, though, like, think about this. He's asking them to come buy something that they actually can't afford. Now, this, this leads me to one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. I love Isaiah 55. I want to look at the first two verses with you this morning. Now, again, 600-plus years before Jesus walks on the earth, God is speaking, extending this invitation He says this in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Does this sound familiar? It sounds like a song we sing here. It sounds like something I heard Jesus say several times. Remember what he said to the woman at the well? When he invited her to come and to to, to have water from him that does not, from the well that does not run dry. She said, sir, how are you going to draw water? You're going to have a bucket what was he talking about? He talking about himself. And now in Isaiah, way before Jesus ever walked on earth, in Isaiah 55, this invitation to come, anyone who is thirsty, come to the waters, and then look at what he says next. And he who has what? No money. Come, buy, and eat. Now what a strange thing to say. What is God saying here? Does he want you to just show up with no money so he can laugh at you and go, ha-ha, you don't have any money, go away. He's saying, no, come and buy something that you can't afford, and here's the deal. I'm going to give it to you for free. I love this. Come and buy what you can't afford. And then if you continue reading in Isaiah 55, come buy wine and milk with money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not what satisfy you feel that invitation coming from God all the way back in Isaiah anybody who's thirsty anybody who's not satisfied with what you have here on earth the invitation is come find your satisfaction in me I will give you something that you can't afford to buy isn't that beautiful What does he say in Isaiah 55? You labor after things that don't satisfy. Quit chasing after, spending your resources, your energy, trying to find your identity and your purpose and your joy in things that are fleeting. Come find those things in me, and I will give you what you can't afford to buy. It's a beautiful thing what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea. Come buy from me pure gold. If he had just said, come come buy from me some sheep or some gold or some things that they had resources to buy, you, you see how that would be so different? And he's saying, come buy from me what you can't find anywhere else, satisfaction in me and me alone. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy the longings of our heart. He's the only one. Can I just tell you, I need to hear that today. I do. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't say that I'm wealthy like these people are wealthy, but let's just be honest. We, we enjoy a lot of blessings here. Even the poorest among us is probably more wealthy than these folks. And, and I am tempted on a daily basis to find my joy in fleeting Things. It's an everyday struggle for me. Okay? These group of folks had completely sold out. They weren't struggling anymore. But I needed to hear that this morning. My joy is not found in how awesome my wife can be today. I got a good wife. My joy is not based on how well my kids do in school. For the most part, I got some pretty good boys but even if they get perfect attendance and perfect straight A's and never get any kind of disciplinary actions, like my joy isn't founded in those things. I'm tempted to find it in those things, aren't I? Why? Because when they don't go my way, I get frustrated. What does that tell you? I'm looking for my joy in those things. My joy is found in Jesus and Jesus alone, and I need to hear that this morning. The next thing that he said is what? I counsel you to to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So the first thing he's offering us is satisfaction in him and him alone, the longings of our heart. The next thing he says is what? Which is interesting because they were famous. Now understand these these clothes made with black wool, this is like Armani kind of stuff. Okay? This is very high quality, high-end clothing that they're just wearing around whatever you know, they've got left over after selling it. So they're clothed very well in these rich black garments. It was called raven black wool. But look at what he says here. He says, Come buy from me not only gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, but white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen takes us all the way back to Genesis 2 to the garden. Creation of Adam and Eve. God brings them together as one flesh. And what's the last verse say in Genesis 2? They were naked and they were not ashamed. Meaning what? There was no sin, therefore there was no shame. There was no need to hide or cover or dress it up. What's the very next thing that happens though once sin enters? they're dressing it up, they're hiding it, they're covering up. Why? Because as soon as sin enters the heart of any man or woman, a wave of shame washes over and immediately our knee-jerk reaction is what? I got to hide. I got to hide. I can't be exposed. I can't be seen. I got to come up with an excuse. I got to find somebody to blame. I got to pretend like this didn't happen. I got to delete the browsing history. I got to do whatever it is, right? It's our knee-jerk reaction is to hide. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, you've clothed yourself in in the best clothing you can come up with, but I want to clothe you in something you can't come up with. Righteousness. Freedom from shame. See, Jesus doesn't just wrap his robe around us to cover up our shame. He removes our shame and our guilt and then clothes us in pure white. That's not just what we look like on the outside. That's a reflection of who we now are on the inside. And so he's saying to them, you've done your best to dress yourselves in the, most, in the finest clothing you can dress yourselves in, but you're still full of shame. Come wear what I'm having to offer. Come wear what I have to offer, and you'll know and feel no shame. Jesus is the only one who can clothe us in righteousness. Jesus alone. I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Jesus alone can take the shame out of our lives and clothe us in righteousness. <clears throat> the last thing he mentioned here, which is interesting, is that they are blind. And then he tells them to come and to buy a salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Here's what's interesting about that. Remember, they, they hold the temple with this amazing medical facility known for its compounding. One of the things they're known for was an eye salve. And so they had the best that medicine had to offer. And the irony here, he is saying, you've got the best medicine has to offer, but it can't cure your spiritual Blindness. You live in a beautiful city. You wear beautiful clothes full of beautiful people. Got your beautiful sheep, your beautiful banks, but you're blind. You can't actually see what is true. And he says, come to me that I might open your eyes. Jesus is the only one who can heal our spiritual blindness. He's the only one. He's the only one. Now, I love verse 19. I'm going to need your help on this one, by the way. Just get ready. Verse 19. Those whom I, those whom I love, I reprove and... Whoa. Love and discipline merge together here in the character of God. Now, we don't have time to fully get into this. We're going to get into it just for a second. But the idea here is what Jesus is saying is what, you'll know that I love you because why? Because I'll discipline you. Can I get an amen from the parents? Kids, do your parents ever say that to you when you're being disciplined? I'm doing this because I love you. Yeah, sometimes. There's some truth in that. God says that about himself in Hebrews 12. I discipline my children who I love. And he goes on to say, like, you need to be worried if I don't discipline you. Right? Because that means you're illegitimate. I discipline my children. Now one of the things that helps me understand this is what Jesus said in John 15. He talks about the church like it's a vine. You may be familiar with this. He says, I, "I'm the vine, you are the branches." This is John 15, verse one. He says, "I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser." You know what a vine dresser is? It's the pruner. It's the one who tends to the vine. When a branch gets a little wild, he cuts it off. So Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch, who are the branches? That's us. In me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, cuts it off. Actually, you going to make a big pile and a big uh, bonfire with these branches. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he what? What does he do? prunes. Does that sound comfortable? It doesn't, does it? That sounds painful. That sounds like discipline. And Jesus is saying in John 15, here's the thing. I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? This whole thing is about being tightly knit together in relationship. My father's the vine dresser though. He comes along and anybody who's not bearing fruit, which means what? You're not truly in Christ. He's cutting off. Oh, but by the way, those of you who are in Christ, get ready because he's got some clippers with him and he's going to prune even the ones of you who bear fruit. God the Father disciplines those whom he loves. And so Jesus is saying to the church, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, stop. You've probably heard this verse or a version of it. He stands at the door and he's knocking. What is that? He's talking about an invitation. Jesus has come to the the doorway of each of our lives, every one of us. Like right now, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. And he says this, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and what? Opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Now, what a beautiful imagery of the God of the universe. See, being a Christian isn't just about getting my name on a list or getting a seat in heaven. God is saying, here's what it means to be a Christian. This thing, this is a big dinner, and I've got a chair for you at my table. I want to dine with you. I want to be known by you in that way. I want to know you and be known. This is an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Jesus is saying, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking, that you might open it, that I could come into your life, into your heart, clean up the mess that you've made, and have a relationship with you. Jesus wants to know you. On a daily basis, he's inviting you to dine with him. Intimately. God is seeing who you are and where you are right now. I can't see that in you. I just see the you you want me to see. right? I see what's on the outside. The Holy Spirit of God is right now moving through this room, and he's looking at you truly into the depths of who you are, and he's saying, I love you. I don't love you for what you can offer me. Matter of fact, don't don't bring money to try to purchase what I'm going to give you. You won't be able to afford it. I love you for you. Now come into a relationship with me. The love of Jesus, if you're taking notes, is made known to us by his invitation to enter into a deep and abiding relationship. Being a Christian is not about fire insurance. It's not about just a peace of mind if something bad happens. Being a Christian means walking in daily fellowship with the God of the universe. That's his desire for us. And look at what he says next. Now, in all seven letters, Jesus reminds us that we are conquerors. And in this particular letter, as he wraps up the seven letters, he more specifically helps us understand what he means by that. Okay? So think about that as we read these next verses. 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So when Jesus calls us conquerors, it's not because we're spiritually strong and we've got a lot to offer. What he's saying is, I'm inviting you to come be a co-conqueror with me. Everything I conquer, you conquer. Now that is so important for us to hear today. You know what that means? Like when you get to the end of Revelation, guess what is conquered at the end? Death itself. Everything, everything that is bringing suffering to your life or causing you hardship or struggle will be put to death at the authority of Jesus. Everything. Loneliness will have its last day among God's people. You may be struggling with loneliness right now, and Jesus says what I've conquered that come be a co-conquer with me depression gosh depression is such a hard thing to struggle with I went through about a depression myself several years ago and to get out of it is so difficult some of you are there right now and you're wondering when when will this ever end when will I ever experience joy again when will I ever experience life again, and and all those things that are wandering in your mind, and Jesus says to you, here's the thing, I've conquered that. In the end, I get the final word over depression. I get the final word over pain and suffering, heartache, loss, Jesus says, I have conquered and I'm inviting you to be a conqueror with me. In the same way that God the Father, after he resurrected, invited him to sit down at the right hand of the throne, Jesus is saying, come sit with me. I've got room here. Come sit with me. Trust me. When this thing goes down, Revelation, whether you're a post-millennialist or pre-millennialist, when this thing goes down, this is where you're going to want to be seated. I promise you. When I stand toe-to-toe with Satan himself, And I stare death in the eyes and I say, it's time for you to die. promise you, you're going to want to be sitting right here. The invitation is to join him in his victory. The love of Jesus is made known to us by his invitation to join him in his victory over sin and death. So when we're experiencing discipline, we go, gosh, this doesn't feel like love. Jesus reminds us what? He's inviting us into a deep and abiding relationship and he's inviting us To join him in his victory over sin and death. He does love you. He does. I wanna end here this morning. I wanna pray um, for us. And uh, and I I just trust that in some way you've been encouraged by God's word this morning and that he's potentially spoken to you uh, in a very specific way. Um, As we invite the worship team to come back up, um, I'm gonna pray over us. And I just want you to know that we have um, prayer partners available in this service. Um, While we're singing, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to be in the back. They'll have um, lanyards on. It says prayer partner. Um, They would love nothing more uh, but just to pray with you um, or talk with you more about what it means to be a Christian. Um, At the end of our services, when we dismiss, our prayer partners will be down here at the front. They're not going home. They're waiting on you. So just know that we want to pray with you this morning and what God is speaking and doing in your life. Um, But more than anything, as we sing these next two songs, let's let's respond to what God has spoken. Okay? I'm going to pray for us now, and we'll, we'll do that. Um, Father, thank you so much for reminding us that you do love us. And God, even in the midst of hardship, struggles, you love us. And God, while we don't fully understand things, we do know that you are a loving father who disciplines his children whom he loves. God, this morning, I want to pray specifically for any person here who has not opened up the door to Jesus in their life. God, right now as I pray, Jesus, as you knock on the door of their heart, God, that they would open the door and let you in. If that's you this morning, I do pray that you would respond to the love of Jesus. And what he has to offer you this morning isn't for sale. You couldn't afford it if it was. He's saying, come and take the free gift of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. They're all on the table this morning for you, simply by faith. Holy Spirit, come move among us now as we sing. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged and convict us where we need to be convicted and change us in the places where we've yet to look like Jesus. We pray in his name.